0: go it's certainly not a book that is common in our vocabulary within the church. We don't refer to it very often. Um, literally Obadiah, the man Obadiah, the prophet Obadiah, this is the singular place in all of the Bible where he's referenced <clears throat> and not much is known about him. Let's read chapter one, which by the way is the only chapter. there's 21 verses in this chapter. Verse 1, let's read through, well, at least one through, one and two, how's that, we'll start there. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord. And an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise and let us go against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small amongst the nations. You are greatly despised. The oddity of this book is that it's the only book in all of your Bible, Old and New Testament, which singularly Uh, singles out a nation to be judged and spoken against by the Lord. Literally, verse 1 is a call to war against the nation of Edom, which is on the east side of uh, Israel. We know of Edom. Uh, We'll talk about it more later on. Um, It is a nation that is about 40 miles wide and about 120 miles long on the eastern border east of the Jordan Ridge River. It is a nation that is wicked, as all of the nations were, were back in that time. Um, but the oddity is, is the fact that God has written a book for us, for that time, for Israel and to Israel, to literally speak judgment unto a singular nation, without really much messianic message within yeah. it and so that's odd I mean we have other portions of the prophets that will single out Egypt or Babylon or Edom again like in Jeremiah and Isaiah but not entire granted someone might say but it's only 21 verses and rightfully so but that's the message I am declaring war against Edom the difficulty about this book and I've read four, four different commentators <clears throat> on this whole thing and I spent a lot of time on it more than Jeremiah and the others that I've done. I didn't thank Pat Ford by the way after yesterday's cleanup because uh, I'm like this one's a, uh, kind of difficult to do because you don't have much you don't know much about Obadiah and also you don't know about the time frame to which God is speaking. There are some options, two specifically. That is between, that would be 580, I'm sorry, 848 BC and also 586. The two time frames when the Edomites conspired with other nations in order to destroy Judah. So the question is, which one? On the one hand, you will uh, read, if you read the commentaries of like Calvin and Matthew Henry and Ryrie and uh, who else? And MacArthur. Uh, Those are the sources I looked at. That, um, for instance, Calvin says, he says, in no way could uh, Obadiah live before Isaiah. On the other hand, you've got John MacArthur who says... um, He probably did live before Isaiah. Matthew Henry approaches it this way. He says, well, we have these two periods of time where Edom was involved. There were actually four times when Edom was involved in relationship to trying to defeat Judah and the nation of Israel as a whole. Basically being a vassal of other larger, more powerful empires like the Babylonians and also like the Philistines and and also with the Arabs uh, in 848. But the idea though is, is that of four times to which Edomites were known to be um, uh, complicit with striking down, trying to strike down Israel with other greater powers, uh, only two times could actually coincide with the age and the Time of Obadiah's ministry. So that's why those two dates are given. But you're talking about a, um, let's see, 586 and 848, you figure it out. There's several hundred years, right? 586, 686, 786. So 250 years worth of time difference between trying to choose what time frame was Obadiah speaking to Edom. The central theme is God's vision to Obadiah concerning Edom and making war against them. First, before we even go any further, it's important for us to remind ourselves of God's relationship with the Edomites and the foundation of that. It was a relationship that was ordained by God even from the womb of Rebekah, Isaac's wife. Go to Genesis chapter 25. I marvel at the fact that God does not forget history. He uses history. He makes history. Genesis 25, verses 24 through 26. Actually, let's read... Actually, we're going to read that a little bit later let me see in my notes where I'm going to do that and I'm going to just read it all yeah let's read all of it from 21 to 26 and Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren and the Lord answered him and Rebekah his wife conceived but the children struggled together within her and she said if it is so why then am I this way so she went to inquire of the Lord And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two people shall be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Which, by the way, we know that's reverse, right? Usually it's the firstborn that receives all the blessings, right? Verse 24. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red, which, by the way, Edom Uh, Esau means, all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. And after his brother came forth from his hand, holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob, and Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth. And so we have this history of the birth of guess what the word would use of rivalry would eventually would turn into a life of bitterness because that Esau's rightful blessing to be given by his father uh, was taken away by the scheming of, um, of Jacob and his mother Rebecca and by that there was an internal hatred you could say through cousins brothers and then eventually cousins down the line of history it's the lineage of Esau who became the Edomite nation God said to Isaac two nations are in your womb and that's where we have Israel and we have the Edomite nations or Edom now here's the thing um a lot, a lot has passed to this point. If you choose, like Matthew Henry does, when basically says, there's two different time frames, there's 250 years difference when Obadiah could have lived. And um, so he teaches more concerning in relationship to the war against Edom and God's declaration of it against him, what he will do. He talks about the pride of Edom and so on, and then the future of Israel. But as you read Matthew Henry, just like Calvin, they begin in their words as they get along within the book in their commentary that they're believing that it's more the Babylonian captivity that it's all uh, associated with rather than in 858 and being previous between 722, which is, by the way, what is 722 significant for? Exile. The the exile of the ten northern tribes, right? The Assyrians' captivity, right? So I have 586 becomes very significant because that's the Babylonians. decreed that they would be enslaved for 70 years, they would return, and so on. So two nations shall be separated from your body. And there would be trouble between the two for evermore. You can say here that God's word shall not return void. Centuries of rivalry and hatred, their kicking at one another occurs at several places. What are some of those places that you know there was conflict between Israel? And when I say Israel, I'm including Israel's history at the time of Obadiah, probably more likely when the Babylonian captivity occurred or was occurring. If you look at, actually, uh, uh, Charles Ryrie from Dallas Seminary's Notes, he has a map of the prophets of the prophets of Israel and the prophets of Judah. He puts Obadiah as the prophet of Israel speaking against Edom. So there's another oddity going on here between scholars. So what are some of the things that happened between Israel and Edom, or the Emites, uh, the relations of Esau, where uh, it showed this rivalry of nations.
1: How about when when Israel came out of Egypt? Uh The Edomites prohibited them from going into their
0: land. That's right. That's right. And yet God said, don't judge them. Right? They had to go around. Where else? We also know, first, by the, by the way of the story, we don't have time to read all the way through it, but actually Esau had planned to kill Jacob. Right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He planned to kill him. That's right. And he had, he had to flee. Uh, and that's where the story continues by fleeing to uh, um, Rebekah's Laban. Uh, Laban, her brother. Right? <coughs> Here's one: Esau sold his birthright for a pot of red stew, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Here's another one: Esau rejected God's covenant promise by marrying two Canaanite women. Then he eventually married Ishmael's daughter.
2: Did he do that initially deliberately, just to frost his parents?
0: Probably, <laughs> probably.
2: He said something in there. Yeah, extent, right? yeah. <laughs>
0: by the way, against the law of God. Of yeah. course, that was, That's of course, right. not established yet at that time, mm-hmm. but. Still, this separation that began, by the way, with Abraham, come out of the era of Chaldeans and, right, the, the place of Haran, mm-hmm. and separate yourself, leading him to a promised land that wasn't quite fully, uh, you could say, developed in the mind of Abraham mm-hmm. yet at that time. Yeah, Mark? I'm just, well, I'm just
2: looking at a couple things here. First uh, Samuel 22, Doah the Edomite stood by the servants of Saul and said I saw a son of Jesse come to Nod to Ahimelech the son of uh, Aditya but he inquired of the Lord for he gave him provisions and he gave him the servant of Goliath mm-hmm. though the Edomite was you know, reporting to Saul that he is, because Saul then sends, sends right. uh, he sent uh, he, he summoned Ahimelech the priest probably called him Carmon right so it was not right. on the nation but the Edomites.
0: right right yeah, no, that's a good one. I didn't even have it on my list, but that's an excellent one. <clears throat> How about Edom uh, conspired with the Philistines? This is more history. Uh, he conspired, uh, Edom conspired with the Philistines and the Arabians in 848 B.C., and then also they conspired with the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Of course, I started off the study by mentioning those are the two controversial dates in terms of trying to figure out one 10- of. Obadiah was actually acting as a prophet. But again, they were not their friend, the Israelites' friend. <laughs> Go to Obadiah one ten through fourteen. Todd,
2: do you able to find out I haven't ever looked into it, if this Obadiah is well you can't be the same Obadiah that helped. No, actually
0: I when you said that I made, but I didn't even have to do any word study because two commentators said, This is it. Obadiah is here. And this is the only Obadiah of the Old and New Testament mentioned. Yeah. Makes sense. Starting in verse ten, it says Because of violence to your brother Jacob that's why it's important to understand the initial uh, mm-hmm. rivalry that mm-hmm. came out of Rebecca's womb, right? Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame Mm. and you will be cut off forever. By the way, it's interesting to note that uh, Edom disappears in history after 70 AD. Mm. On the day... So there's an eschatological slash future sense. The judgment of Edom brings and ushers in the thought of God's wrath and judgment upon other nations. That's an underlying theme in the 21 verses. Verse 11, On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gate, and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. In other words, you conspired with the other nations. You conspired, depending on the time you choose, you conspired with the Philistines, the Arabians, or in 586, you conspired with the Babylonians. Interesting to note, they actually didn't actively participate in the fighting, according to some of the information I gleaned. Verse 12, Do not gloat over your brother's day. Notice the imagery here. This has been going on for a long time. Edom, do not gloat over your brother. Right? Mm Uh-huh the day of his misfortune. And do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate, my people, in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. And do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Verse 14, and do not stand at the fork of the road to cut them or cut down their fugitives, and do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. The Edomites were known after the Babylonians took away the, well, destroyed the Jerusalem in wholesale, took away the articles within the temple, uh, dispersed the people, and took most uh, back to Babylon. Um, they were also known for being the ones who stood in the main roads leading away from Jerusalem and cutting them down as they left. So that might be an indication timing-wise when Obadiah is the prophet in. But again, not with quite certainty. But they're cruel. Can you imagine that? Probably women and children, the men stayed in the fort to battle Fought to the last breath, and the women and children in general are trying to flee, and they just cut them down. These verses give Obadiah's reason for writing to warn Edom about their complicity with Judah's enemies. The question is which war was Obadiah talking about, and we're not going to settle that today. But there are three years that he, three words that he commonly uses in these this text of verses um, ten through fourteen, and that is don't gloat. Don't rejoice and don't boast. Mm -hmm. Go back to Jeremiah 49. This is a... It's not a parallel text. But what scholars say is that Isaiah and Jeremiah used some of the wording, the vocabulary, uh, to describe uh, the destruction of Edom again. So they borrowed from... Obadiah. And if that is the case, that makes Obadiah's ministry, as Charles Riley says, right around just before and just after the Babylonian captivity. So he becomes a contemporary of them. Jeremiah 49, verses 7 through 12. Look at, by the way, when, when I read this, look at the disposition of Edom. Verse 7, Concerning Edom, thus says the Lord of hosts, Is there no longer any wisdom in Teman? Which is, by the way, a city within the Edomites. Has good counsel been lost to the prudent? Has their wisdom decayed? Flee away, turn back, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Dedan. For I will bring the disaster of Esau upon him. If grape-gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? This is quoted in Obadiah as well. If thieves came by night, would they not destroy only until they had enough? In other words, there would be some, some grapes left in the vineyard and people still could glean what was left. There wasn't a total destruction of cruelty But I have stripped Esau bare. I have uncovered his hidden places so that he will not be able to conceal himself. His offspring has been destroyed along with his relatives and his neighbors and he is no more. Leave your orphans behind. I will keep them alive and let your widows trust in me. So we borrowed. Jeremiah borrowed from Obadiah. Wording. By the way, what does this say about if one prophet borrows from another prophet words and meanings of words and also um, even using the descriptive language of condemnation to nations, what does that say about the prophets in relationship to other prophets in your Old Testament?
2: They were the forerunners of copy and paste. <laughs>
0: yeah. there you go <laughs> life,
2: yeah. but God, the inspiration
0: process that God uses
2: you know, also has that as part of its process That's right. I know this yeah. isn't necessarily looking for it but it does make me think that well, just as in the Gospels it's quite possible that some borrow from others Yeah. Uh, part of the, the process of inspiration is the preservation of the final text that mm. comes to us through the various meanings so.
0: but it's also trust in another author slash prophets mm. works in mm. words right yeah.
2: Well, we have the same thing today. When they get their talking points for the evening news, or so called news, they all say the same thing. Right. I mean, they're all very uniform in their yep. whatever they're gonna to try to destroy that evening.
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's a loaded pistol, I'm not gonna shoot it. No, it's not On the day cool. you stood aloof, Obadiah says, yeah. the, you know, we see the pride of today. And actually, while I'm talking, turn to Psalm 10. Pride does an awful lot of things to not only a person, but also to a nation. Pride is something that, you know, if we think we're better than others, whether nationally or individually, uh, there is a fall waiting for us down the road. Mm. Um, Pride goes before the fall. Uh, Look what uh, David says in Psalm 10. Uh, verses one through four. Why dost thou stand afar off, O Lord? Why dost thou hide thyself in times of trouble? In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in their plots, which they have devised, for the w- wicked boast of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked and the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. All his thoughts. There is no God. You wonder why America is where it is at. You and I as Christians and our institutions are marginalized. It's because they are saying, there is no God. Nor a God of Israel, nor a God of the Christian Right? And this is the pride of nations. And this is why I believe that Obadiah, by the inspiration of God, uh, picks up on other nations as we read it. This is not just the downfall of Edom, but it's the downfall of every nation that preceded and in the future will fall because of their pride and God's judgment upon them.
2: I'm just. I get the picture that there was an all-encompassing condemnation of Israel at that point because Babylon was involved I'm assuming it's that third period of time 586 and Edom there were probably other nations too that were involved you know they were all coming the to direct uh, Israel
0: well again the power base if you pick 586 is the Babylonians they sucked up every other nation you either become a vassal and, right, right. and make a treaty with them or you die and you're overwhelmed. That's what empires do, right? right. That's what empires do. Mm-hmm. Now, in Psalm 31, you might want to go there. Because let me tell you if you and I are in the spot of 586, now in 2023, right, where it seems like we're surrounded by our enemies, you could kind of wake up in your bed a little depressed, <laughs> wouldn't you say? Especially, I'll be honest with you, if, if you watch the news, if you're on the internet a lot, uh, and I even warn against that, uh, for myself even, and for my other brothers and sisters in Christ's Sovereign Grace Chapel, at the end of the day, we can fill our hearts with so much bad news, we forget the good news. Amen. Brian. Right? Amen. We just forget the good news. So in Psalm 31, verses 19 through 21, let's read this. This is our hope when history goes awry against us. How great is thy goodness, which thou hast stored up for those who fear thee, which thou hast wrought for those who take refuge in thee, before the sons of men. Thou dost hide them in the secret place of thy presence from the conspiracies of man." thou dost keep them secretly in shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has made marvelous his loving kindness to me in a besieged city. Mm-hmm. We're besieged. Now granted we're not starving right now, as the uh tribe of Judah and Benjamin were and Surrounded Jerusalem, it's a you know just read Josephus, you'll see a gory detail of the starvation and of the calamity that happened behind those walls in the time it took. but even in a besieged city, God's loving kindness is there, even in a besieged America, God's kindness is here in this room, and by the way, God has verse nineteen stored up for those love him, his goodness. You feel besieged today by the world going awry? He has stored up goodness for you and for me. Right? This is one of the uh, lessons of um, the book of Obadiah. The wicked will not endure. They will receive the just rewards of God in the end. And God will vindicate us He wants to, and the message we preach to a lost world, and he will vindicate us by destroying them and eventually throwing all wicked and evil men with Satan and his angels into the lake of fire. But he's storing up goodness for you and I. Now go back to Obadiah, verses 2 through 4. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. So in other words, your boastfulness, by the way, even your pride and your national strength, right? You are greatly despised. the arrogance, this is corresponding also with Jeremiah 49, we just read, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you, that pride, you who live in the clefts of the rock in the loftiness, of your dwelling place. The capital city of uh, of the Edomites, of Edom, was Petra. You can still visit it today. You can go down there. There's one canyon, not pathway, but one road-like entrance to a canyon of 2,000-foot-high cliffs on each side, even bordering it as you go through the canyon of these Uh, brownstone walls that lead to the city. And the faces of the administration buildings and the palace are still there to walk today. And only the Nabataeans later on kicked them out of there. It was impenetrable for a long time. And you boast about your clefts in the rock. Who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to earth? I've got 2,000 foot cliffs. I dare you. Oh, Edom. Yeah, Mark. See, uh, just to mention,
2: because I looked up looked this up a while ago and I was just reading that. Edom became George modern day Jordan. It is. Uh, Petra is in Jordan right yeah, now. Yeah. And it's uh, not a great place. They've always been against Israel. Um, and the, I think recently, in the last few years, uh, in the. Uh, Isis guys go in there and, and, and trying to destroy them? I don't know. They did some damage to it. I don't know. That. Yeah.
0: I, don't know. Um, I know that there's an American woman married to the to the prince who actually has made that nation a much more peaceful nation compared to the rest of the, uh, the nations of the Islamic world. Hmm. Verse 4, Though you build high like an eagle, that's those cliffs, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. We remember Daniel, right? It's interesting, you know. The New Testament says, "Though I were even going to describe it to you, you would not believe." You go in Daniel, and what do you have? You have Daniel having a vision that speaks of his downfall, and the Lord, the 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 uh, the the, uh, the host of heaven bestows upon whomever He wishes. To rule. And then what does Daniel do? He goes out and he boasts, all this is my kingdom. I have done this. And what's the result of his boast? It's eating grass with the beasts. This is, this is what happens when man or countries are so prideful they can't see out of the box of their own power, their own safety, their own might. Now, in verses 5-9, through God's judgment is given through analogy. If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how will you be ruined? Would they not steal only until they had enough? If grape-gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked. Now, that's the comparison, that's the analogy. And, you know, when I pick a farm, there's some apples left to give to the... My peon friends from South Sovereign Grace Chapel, um, but God says there won't even be that much left after I get done ransacking. You will eat them, right? All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroys wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau. Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman, in order that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau Esau by slaughter. Interesting. I listened to a sermon two or three years ago by... Um, he's an Egyptian pastor. No, he's a pastor in the United States. I Youssef. believe the name of Michael Youssef. And he says, one of the key things to look at in the downfall of an empire, which America does fit into that category, uh, is the loss of statesmen. Yeah. Wise men to be able to rule... And to judge between good and evil. And we have lost that. Dramatically. And so that is what Obadiah is preaching against the Edomites. You will lose your wise men. You will have no more statesmen left in you. It speaks of disarray in government places. Governments are built by wise men. God will confound the wise. 1 Corinthians 1, right? Luke 4.31 Luke 4.31 Just go there for a second. I'm really behind the times here, aren't I? I know. It's pretty bad. Luke 4.31 thirty-one. Thirty-two. And he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching for his message was with authority. There's only one message with authority. One God who has the true authority to rule over men. We should not be surprised that in John chapter 19, right? What did Jesus say to Pilate?
2: Thou hast no
1: power over me except that was given thee from above.
0: There you go. No power. The Edomites have no power of their own. It's bestowed by God's sovereignty and God's providence. We sometimes look. Look how powerful they are. Look how far the gender ideology has made. Look at the inroads and all these other things. and They would have no power lest God granted it to them. Jesus' success in redeeming us depended upon God's sovereign use of nations. Right? Look at Rome. Rome. Rome was not just an empire that just so happened showed up and then now God has to somehow uh, have his, soul, his eternal son born of a woman in a certain period of time and somehow make it work with a powerful nation as Rome that lasted close to 500 years. No, Rome was the nation that God chose. The Greek language was being used, the Aramaic, Aramaic language and the Hebrew language. And the Greek language was really important in the writing of the epistles in its ability to be descriptive, right? The road system that Rome built was used not just for Rome's battles and also dispersion of his citizenry, but it was used for the preservation in the uh, uh, and for the... Uh, for the spreading of the gospel. So God even used persecution, right? Philip goes to Samaria. He used the persecution from the Romans in order to spread the gospel. All of this is all planned. All of this is determined by God. Yes, even the destruction of the Edomites. We should consider, and only for sake of time we won't go there, but in Matthew 12, if you go to Matthew 12, we have this binding and loosing of kingdoms. Right? God is plundering Satan's kingdom. He plunders Edom, which is Satan's kingdom. Yes, the kingdom of men, but again, there's a spiritual kingdom above all of the kingdoms. And God is ruling over them and uses Satan even when God plunders Satan and saying, I'm done, finally. It's like a cup that is filled with the wrath of God. And you pour, and you pour, and you pour, and finally God says, ah, it's overflowing, it's time. It's time for Rome, it's time for Edom, it's time for the Assyrians, it's time for the Greeks. Look at Obadiah 1, 15 and 16. For the day of the Lord draws near to all nations. See, there's that connection, isn't it? It's not just about Edom. It's about the message of God to Israel that no matter what nation comes your way, I will deal with them. I already have them in my hand. Right? So it becomes this almost evangelistic gospel of spreading the good news my goodness is in you even when the city is in captivity. I'm still with you. <clears throat> so by the way, what is the last nation that will have to be destroyed when Christ returns? Well, What's nice. the last that's nation? Enemies, yeah. <laughs> okay. The last nation though. Well, hopefully it's America. Laughter well, of course, we know it's spiritual Babylon. So I'm using a little play on words here. It's, it's the, it, you, you could say it's the confederacy of evil amongst all nations. That God will finally defeat the last nation slash represented by spiritual Babylon in the book of Revelation. And he will destroy it. Go to Revelation chapter 18.
2: <clears throat> and by that I mean, I hope that we are the last great power on earth before the greatest power comes. Don't want to see another nation rises, No, I know, I know. And,
0: and just thinking in the future, right. what nations are available right. to be an empire? You say, Eesh. there'll be none that
2: have been oof, kind oof, of oof. more
0: pursuit of the gospel. That's right. It'll be world totalitarianism. Mm-hmm. If there's another empire after yeah. America, it will be world totalitarianism. Yeah, uh, verses one through ten, and then verse twenty. Mm-hmm. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having a great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, "Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, and and he has uh, become a dwelling place of demons and and a prison of every unclean spirit, mm-hmm. and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird." For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. That's the church that you may not participate in her sins, that you may not receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, just like Edom's, by the way, as high as heaven or as a cup. Pay her back, even as she is paid. Give back to her, double according to her deeds in the cup, which she has mixed twice as much as, for, uh, as much for her. To the degree that she glorified herself, there's the pride, and lives sensuously to the same degree. Give her torment and mourning, for she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow, and I will never see mourning. Oh, the pride of the nations that follow Edom. For this reason in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will burn up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong." And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her. They will see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Now verse 20. Rejoice over her. That's spiritual Babylon's Decay and destruction. O oh, heaven and you saints, apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Every nation, every empire that is judged by God is for you against her. Why? Because He's storing up and has stored up goodness for you. To Christ. Notice Obadiah, a little similarity here. As you have done it, Edom. It will be done to you. In Revelation eighteen, six, pay her back even as she is paid. So verses sixteen to seventeen, Edom will drink the wrath of God, just as they drank from the saints of Jerusalem. And all the nations will drink continually and become as if it were never existed. Edom won't even exist until 78 AD. Now the most difficult of the passages for the last 15 minutes is verses 17 through 21. This speaks of the future of Jacob's blessings. The future of Israel. What is implied here is that This is violence against Jacob's brother and eventually God is going to rescue Jacob Jacob again. But how could that be? We know, no matter what time period you choose, either 858, I believe that was the date, or uh, 586, around there, uh, we know the history of Israel. Never to have their own nation back again. Never. Never although there are land promises that are given in Obadiah, right? Go back to Obadiah. All they possess, the territory of Edom and the territory of Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead and the exiles of his host, which is, by the way, equivalent to saying the survivors of Israel, of the sons of Israel who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sapphira will possess the cities of the Negev. The deliverers will ascend to Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau. You'll repossess the land and you will by your possession of the land once again for Israel after the Babylonian captivity, let's say, then you will repossess the land, and that will be the final stone on the grave of Esau. Eden. But then we know history. They never owned their own land again. Now, someone might point to 1948 and Israel, but I'm not going to go on that contemporary interpretation. The scholars of the Old Testament, the, the prophets of the Old Testament, knew nothing of that. Mm-hmm. They're thinking more, more um, uh, recent. That well, this will happen, but how do we understand that? Because we know that Israel's downfall was a complete downfall, literally to the point. Malachi says, "I've divorced you." Even when Jesus comes on the scene in, in John, he says, "The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given a nation, be given to a nation producing the fruit of it." We have to remember that God said to Jacob in Bethel. This is important. So we go back to Jacob, because Obadiah is speaking concerning Jacob. This struggle's been going on for a long time. It began in the womb even, right? Remember, God said to Jacob in Bethel, by the way, which became actually the worship site of the ten northern tribes, I am the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac, He's saying this to Jacob. I will give it to your descendants. Your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth, and you and all your families of the earth will be blessed. That's the Abrahamic covenant. By the way, also given to Isaac, now given to Jacob. In other words, the promise of the gospel, which we learn through Paul's interpretation, not ours, that when God said, Abraham, look up on the stars and your generation, your posterity will be as numerous as the stars in heaven. Look at the sand, the little pebbles of sand on the seashore. Your progeny will be as great as that number was not referring to a reestablished land, but according to Paul, those who receive the gospel and inheriting a future promise of a land that is in heaven... Mm -hmm. In a new Jerusalem, and in a, a renewed heaven and earth. So the question becomes to the reader trying to study Obadiah, which is he talking about? Because we know history says you never, you did not inherit these lands, not to the degree. Now you read Calvin, and you read, I believe, even Matthew Henry agree with him. Maybe this says. Well, when Zerubbabel comes back, when Cyrus's decree, right, the Persian, says, by the way, I'm even going to help you. I'm going to give money towards it after 70 years. Now you're going to go back to Jerusalem. You're going to rebuild the walls, the altar, and the temple. That did happen. But that, is that equivalent to restoring of the whole land? They also say, well, because they're in the land, even though they're under the power of the Persians, they eventually become under the power of the Greeks then they eventually are under the power of the Romans. So can you really say it's your land? Right? Is it really your land of milk and honey? The covenant promised to Jacob is an extension of the Abrahamic covenant. Jacob's dream included a ladder from heaven. God descends to earth, gives Jacob his father Abraham's blessing. Though Abraham is dead, he's still speaking. He spoke to Isaac. He spoke To Jacob, he's still speaking to you and I in covenant terms in other words I'm going to fulfill my covenant the nations will not prosper over you my goodness is with you and my goodness is with you through Christ my son Obadiah sees that some from Mount Zion will escape is this referring to those escaping from the Babylonian captivity? In terms of when, the, when the, the city of Jerusalem was surrounded? When we see the people who escape, you have two choices. You have a choice of seeing it as something that actually occurred within history. rebel comes back from the Persian Empire, uh, the right-hand man, you could say, of uh, the king of Persia, Cyrus, And they come back and they rebuild the temple and the walls and all of that through Nehemiah as well? Or is God speaking of a remnant of Israel who will repossess the promised land and its borders, fulfilling God's promise to Abraham? Which I think is very, very important because the promise is re-spoken, reiterated to Jacob. It's the trinity of patriarchs. Right? The God... Of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. These are the covenant promises that last in perpetuity. Let me see here. And its borders. Fulfilling God's promise to him that his seed or his spiritual seed through Jacob would possess a heavenly city called Jerusalem. I talked about that. Listen to what Hebrews 4 says. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. Now the question is, that's rest in the land of milk and honey? Or is it a rest that is post Israel's as a nation and even further future of a new heaven and new earth? Why would Joshua speak this way? I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. The idolatry of Israel was so deep that God said, I swore on my wrath. Even when they were even in the wilderness. The promised land was a type of salvation and rest, but not the reality of it. Only when the word they heard was united with faith, that's Hebrews 4, could the Israelites experience the true salvation, rest and occupation of the land. Because by the way, you have nothing concerning the land in the New Testament, where we might see any light upon the Old Testament promises of land. Obadiah's prophecy here—I'm rushing as you can see—Obadiah's prophecy here, Mount Zion being holy to God again, and Israel's recovering her boundaries is difficult, and that's an understanding. But look what Calvin does to deal with after he gets done in his commentary. Now, I'm going to take it in halves because he's going with the historical part first. But he says, I can't help myself. I've got to think differently in this because he knows the history of Israel, right? Occupation, occupation, occupation. No land. You don't own it. You don't own it. Calvin says, the altar was built after the Babylonian Empire. Right in terms of the Babylonians uh, conquered it, and then King Cyrus comes along. The Persians defeat the Babylonians. Right, the altar was built again. Sacrifices were offered. Then Mount Zion recovered its holiness. Quoting Obadiah, that is. Here's the second part. God manifested His grace of election. Obadiah, the prophet Obadiah. I have no doubt has regard here simply for the elect of God. So he he he's even constrained to think that there's something much more future with especially verses 17 through 21 in relationship to this land promise and its fulfillment. I know Zion is going to be holy to God again, but where is that in history? Now dispensationalists, a different interpretive view from a different Part of Christianity uh, would say well no that's all going to come in the millennial reign, thousand year reign and Jesus is going to return and he's going to set up his physical kingdom and Zion Mount Zion will become holy again I don't believe that I believe that actually the holy city is the new Jerusalem that comes down Mm -hmm. and fills the new heavens and the new earth with flourishing that we've never experienced ever before So there's a couple questions in the five minutes we have. The enemies of God's people are the enemies of God. America, if it becomes and is actually an enemy of the Christian now, and all its groups and its subsidiaries of its legislatures and uh, activist arms and all those other parts of it, has now become our enemy. But they are also the enemy of God. If God is for us, who can be against us? Can we say that right now? And can we wake up with a smile on our face knowing that, right? How about number two? The victories of the wicked are temporal. The day of the Lord draws near upon all nations. Do you believe that? All nations will be judged. God's going to set up his own nation It's going to be called spiritual Israel. We are the spiritual, uh, we are spiritual Israel, according to Paul in Galatians chapter 6, right? Thirdly, Abraham's promise cannot be thwarted. You believe that? He is still saving a remnant of Israel, the survivors of Israel, spiritual Israel, because of God's covenantal promises from the patriarchal age. God knows those who are His and let anyone who declares His name, let him abstain from all wickedness. And lastly, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Let me see. Go to Hebrews 12. Yeah, it's a good passage in Hebrews 12. Verses 22 22 through 29. This is the hope of the Gospel. Because not only has the Gospel judged our sin through Christ. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. But He also judged every single nation that would not repent. Because He's declared through his resurrecting power Lord of Lords, King of Kings. He is, quote, in the book of Acts, Lord of all. Right? So in Hebrews twelve, verse twenty-two. I gotta get there myself. Verse twenty two. But you have come to Mount Zion. Remember, Mount Zion is going to be holy again. Even after Israel is defeated. But you have come to but you have come to a Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to a general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. "...and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape..." Boy, same word as Obadiah, isn't it? "...when they refused him, who warned them on the earth, but much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven." Israel, if you think the judgment of Jerusalem in 586 is bad enough, unless you repent and believe Christ is Messiah, you haven't seen judgment yet. Right? And his voice shook the earth then. But now he promised saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. And this expression yet once more denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of the created things in order. That includes nations, by the way. And those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken... Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service and reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire and He is a consuming fire in human history when we see one empire after another take over one another and they're all judged by God either, either now or in the future. Right? And we are the only kingdoms left standing. Because it's unbreakable. Because it's the spiritual kingdom of God that looks forward to a new heaven and a new earth. Let's finish in prayer. Father, we thank and praise You for Your love. For the survey of political and national histories of the world, O Lord, that seem to be just, oppressing and powerful and greater than the church. But, Lord, it is not. And we take, we take great heart, O oh Lord, to the fact that You have goodness stored up for us even when a city or a nation is devastated in our presence. And we view it, O oh Lord, as those who will be persecuted and maybe even fleeing the burning fires of persecution. But You, O oh Lord, in Your goodness and righteousness, uphold us every single ounce of the day let us hold on to this word, this word of hope given to Obadiah that says, Edom and all the other nations of the world will be judged and you will preserve your elect. Oh, how we rejoice in that to the glory of Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.